great to be with you. Um, we meet in the school over in Hale, uh, so I have a little bit of building envy whenever I come to your place and uh, see what, what you have here, and I just rejoice with you for what God has given you and what God is doing amongst you. Uh, I love your pastor. He's a great guy. He's a guy who always inspires me, and um, I'm delighted today that he can be at Hale and can inspire our folks uh, down there today. So it's good to be here. I just have a little bit of a concern that George has actually been reading my sermon notes. Just those last sentences he said before he prayed were kind of straight off the page in a way of what I believe God has laid on my heart for you folks this morning. So thank you for that, George. I know you haven't been uh, looking at my notes. Um, but yeah, going to look this morning at Acts chapter 1. This um, microphone keeps moving off my head. I think I must have a big head or something that it keeps slipping off. So uh, excuse me if I keep adjusting it. I'm going to look at Acts chapter 1, calling it the promise and the preparation. The promise and the preparation for the Holy Spirit. That all happens in Acts chapter 2. And a lot of you will be familiar with Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon the church at Pentecost. Uh, But George talked about waiting, about waiting on the Lord. And I want to, uh, this morning, encourage you uh, to wait upon the Lord. Are you impatient? Are you naturally impatient? I think I am. I think that's that's the way I am. You know, if I'm in a a traffic jam, uh, well, are you like this? Are you one of those lane changers on the motorway where you kind of... um, move from lane to lane, thinking you're just going to get that extra 20 yards ahead of everybody else, and then you find that the cars you've just overtaken then come and pass you by as well. Or are you um, like I am in, in a supermarket in Lidl or something like that, and you always get into the wrong queue? Yeah? Yeah, you know what that's like? You know, you, you, you sort of choose your queue carefully, and then you get in it and you find that Captain Slow is ahead of you, or, or Mrs. Slow, and uh, they can never find their purse, and they can never find their credit card, and, and the whole thing, and you, you realize that the queue you should have been in is long gone uh, by the time you get through. We're impatient, we're in a world that you expect things immediately, don't you? We expect Amazon to deliver within 24 hours. Uh, we expect our computers to boot up immediately. Mine never does, but we hope it will. We expect it to happen. It's an instant world. But we're going to look at some people this morning who were told by Jesus himself to go and wait. To wait upon God. And I'm going to read, if you've got your Bibles, from Acts and chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through to 14. It will be on the screen, I think, as we go. In my former book, Theophilus... I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but, listen, wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. 
For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem, and from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Amen. God will bless to us the reading of his word. Put yourself in their shoes, or maybe it was their sandals in those days. The people mentioned in Acts chapter 1. This was definitely a new season for them. Since the resurrection of Jesus, 40 days had passed. And they had enjoyed the amazing appearances of the risen Lord Jesus amongst them. As well as his continued encouragement and teaching. One of the most striking things he said to them came in the form of a promise. I think promise is going to come up on there. Hopefully. Yeah, then that's not the right one, I don't think. But anyway, it's verse 4 and 5 from the chapter we're reading. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, in amongst these times of blessing, in amongst this kind of period of encouragement that they had with Jesus at that time, I guess they also had some real concerns and some worries about what was going to happen next. What did the future hold? Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you kind of have some concerns and worries about your future. Even what's going to happen in this next week. There was also maybe a little bit of disappointment. Because things hadn't worked out exactly how they wanted them to. They'd been waiting for the Messiah. And the Messiah was for them somebody who was going to come and deliver them from the, from the, the rule of the Romans was going to be this amazing figure who was almost going to come with an army and rout the Romans and set Israel free. 
But what they'd experienced with this man, this Jesus, was something quite different. Because this man came with a heart of love, a heart that that ministered to the ordinary man. There was no desire, there was no um, desire in him to be that sort of ruler, riding on a horse, being some sort of king amongst the people. He came as an ordinary man. But he came to minister, and he came to minister to the ordinary people that were in Jerusalem and in Israel in those days. But still he'd gone. He wasn't with them all the time. He came and he taught them. But where were the days of him teaching on the hillside? The days of miracles in the towns and villages around Galilee. Where were those days? What had happened? What was going to happen next? Would they be safe? How could all this continue without this extraordinary teacher, this miracle worker, this man who claimed to be the Son of God? Maybe it was a good thing that they didn't know what was coming. Probably only one of those 11 at that time that were meeting in that upper room, maybe only one of them would die of old age. Maybe it was a good thing they didn't know what was coming, that the majority of them were going to die a martyr's death. But more importantly, at this time, they didn't know that in these next few days, they would see the fulfilling of that promise that we've just read. That promise that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what that really meant. They would see a world-changing outpouring of the Holy Spirit's power at Pentecost like they'd never experienced before. They would see this good news of the gospel about Jesus the Savior, that it would sweep throughout Asia Minor, that it would sweep into Europe, that it would sweep down into Africa, and it would sweep into the Far East because of the promise. Because of that promise that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. It was the promise that they would be baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. And this morning, that same promise is for you guys in St. Austell. Just as it is for our guys down in Hale. That same Holy Spirit that came upon those people that transformed the whole of the known world in those days. Is that Holy Spirit that comes upon us as believers. 2,000 years later, that same Holy Spirit is at work. Transforming the lives of thousands of people every day. Now we're told by the media that Christianity is dying out in the UK. Latest research shows that in London alone, the church is actually growing. Many of it is amongst the immigrant community, but the church of Jesus Christ isn't dead. And it is growing, even in our country. But in other parts of the world, it is growing on a far bigger scale. I was at a conference yesterday in Red Roof, uh, talking about uh, what's happening in the Muslim world. And they're seeing 60% more converts to faith in Jesus Christ in this century, that's in these first 19 years, Um, of the 21st century than they've seen in five or six centuries beforehand. 
There is a massive turning towards Jesus Christ. There are stories of in Iran and in Afghanistan of people having dreams, of, of people seeing miracles happening amongst them, people turning to Christ. So God's not dead. Jesus is alive. And the Holy Spirit is the power that makes this happen. And as a nation, we face our own uncertainties, don't we? Economically, politically, maybe even personally, because of Brexit. Who's right? Who's wrong? We're not going to have a show of hands this morning. What's going to be the outcome? Is it going to be as apocalyptic as the Remainers say, or is it going to be as wonderful and liberating as the Leavers say? Actually, only God knows on that one. But as followers of Jesus, let's us respond in, in our uncertainty. Let's respond well because of the promise. Because the Holy Spirit is upon us. And that makes a difference. That makes the difference. The Holy Spirit is upon us. And we have power to, no matter what's happening around about us, that we keep focused on Jesus. We keep proclaiming Jesus. And we will see many more come to faith in him. Jesus himself talked about this promise in John 14, uh, verses 16 and 17. He said this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate or counselor to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him For he lives with you and will be in you. You have that Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost living in you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And that should encourage you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. Again, Jesus, John 14, 26. But the advocate, the counselor, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So whatever happens in the economy, whatever happens in our personal lives, our finances, our family lives, or in the lives of our children, or even in our health, in our day-to-day living, In our uncertainties, these disciples had a certainty that the Holy Spirit was coming upon them. And that made a difference. We receive the Holy Spirit when we turn to Jesus and invite Jesus to come and live in our lives. And the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, comes and dwells within us. But there's something quite unique about what Jesus was saying here. He was saying, talking about a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism means like a total covering, an immersion in the Holy Spirit. And I believe sometimes God gives us an extra experience of the Holy Spirit. And some of you maybe could relate Experiences you've, you've had yourself of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon you. Maybe sometimes when you're not expecting it. I love the illustration that um, preacher in the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said about the Holy Spirit. 
He said, picture it like this. A man and his little child are walking down the road. And they're walking, holding each other's hands. The child knows that he is the child of his father. And he knows his father loves him. And he rejoices in that. And he's happy about that. There's no uncertainty about it at all. But suddenly, the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child, picks him up, and cuddles him in his arms. Kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then he puts him down again. And they go on walking together. Lloyd-Jones says, that is it. The child knew before that his father loved him and that he, he was his child. But oh, the loving embrace. The extra outpouring of love. The unusual manifestation of it. That is the kind of thing. The spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Call it a second blessing. For me, it's not just a second blessing because it's been a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth blessing. Uh, God chooses to pour out at special times. But the question is today, are you walking, holding his hand? Are you walking hand in hand with the Father? So that those special times comes, he can pick you up in his embrace. He can cuddle you, he can hold you. And you can feel his intimacy like you've never felt before. Are you walking so close with him? Are you, are you concerned maybe that you're not feeling it every day? You're not feeling maybe that embrace every day. I'd encourage you to just keep walking, holding his hands. Because some days, maybe we don't feel it. But we still in faith believe that he is our father. And he cares for us and he loves us. Keep your hand in his. Know the certainty of his love. Live close to him. In obedience. And believe it is yours. The Spirit is yours. Even those days when you're not necessarily feeling it. As a pastor, I get so often people saying to me, but I don't feel anything. And you go back and you say, well, you're a Christian. You've given your heart and your life over to Christ. It's not actually sometimes about feelings. It's about faith. It's about holding on to God. No matter what your circumstances. Even if you're not feeling it. And praise God he gives us these experiences at times. Where we do feel it. Maybe in worship. Maybe when we come in prayer. Before him. There's just two keys I want to highlight. Two keys relating to these early disciples. And the first one is this, is that obedience is key. Going back to what George said, they were told to wait in Jerusalem. And what do we read immediately after Jesus' ascension in verses 12 and 14? Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went into the upstairs to the room where they had been staying. And then it lists who was present. 
But verse 14 says, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. After the ascension had happened, the temptation, I guess, was to go back to their own homes, to go back to what they'd always been doing because of the uncertainty. But instead of that, they go, and because they're obedient to what Jesus said, they go and together into Jerusalem, and they begin what um, some commentator, commentators say was probably the most um, effective prayer meeting that this world has ever known. Constantly in prayer. A period of ten days in prayer. Seeking God, crying out to God. Thanking Jesus for all that he'd done, but believing and waiting on God, waiting for this Holy Spirit to come, this promise to be fulfilled. And as they were waiting, God immediately spoke to Peter. And if you read on in chapter 1, it talks about how he appointed um, a twelfth apostle to replace Judas who'd betrayed Jesus. Church, if we want to hear from God about his plans for our future... We need to be, first of all, obedient in the present. God doesn't tend to give instruction to people who are living in disobedience. We need to come before him in obedience. We need to maybe confess if we're being disobedient in the way that we're living, in our lifestyle, in our morals, in our relationships, in our ethics, whatever. We need to be obedient. People come up to me and say sometimes, Bob, what do you think God wants me to do now? And I'll often say to them, them, well, what did he tell you to do last? And are you doing it? Because unless you're obedient in that one, he's unlikely to tell you what to do next. Obedience is key. And they met constantly in prayer. Obedience, the second thing is that they waited. Waiting is key. Waiting for God, Campbell Morgan says, is not laziness. I think sometimes we think that in this this world that we live in today. Everything has to be happening all the time. But waiting for God is not laziness. In fact, you can have the most precious times as you wait on God. As you cry out to Him. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of effort. I think again, sometimes in the church, we think if we're waiting for God, we have to stop doing everything. Waiting for God first is activity under command. Obedience. Second, readiness for a new command that may come. And third, the ability to do nothing until the command is given. I like that one. We've got to be doing, pastor. We've got to be doing something. No, actually, we've got to wait until God says what we should be doing. That's the key. Where does the church wait on God together? I don't know anything about your prayer meetings here. But something's astounded me over the years that I've been involved in various churches People always say to me, well, we want to do life biblically. But the same people never, ever darken the door of a prayer meeting. 
I want to challenge the leaders of this church. If you're a leader, you need to come together to pray, to seek God. You see, prayer, I don't know what it is in in today's day and age. We sort of think that prayer maybe is for the super spiritual, for the keenies. It's not, it's for us all. These 120 people were just ordinary, very ordinary people. Earnest for God's Holy Spirit to move. And they experienced that at the start of the next chapter. They were waiting on God. And the Holy Spirit fell on them. They were real. They weren't there praying long prayers. They weren't there using religious language. They were waiting on God. They were worshipping They're crying out for God to move. And I encourage your church to pray in your prayer meetings. Pray in your life groups or growth groups. Pray with friends ad hoc. When you meet together, just spend a little bit of time praying together. Pray in triplets. Pray maybe in twos. But Let me just give you a little bit of advice. Because sometimes I encourage people to do this and... I find that what they're doing is that they, instead of praying, they sit and discuss. And maybe sometimes complain about the church. Instead of praying for it. Yeah, pray alone for the church, not just for your own needs. Pray for your leaders. Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, lived in... Between 1834 and 1892, he was a Baptist minister in England. And he saw enormous blessings from God upon his ministry. And it's no exaggeration to say that literally thousands of people came to faith under his ministry. Some of his service drew as many as 10,000 people to it. And some um, people from out of town came and they, they ended up knocking on the door of Westminster Chapel and saying, what... Um, Can we have a look round? We hear God's at work down here. And they didn't realize that the person who actually answered the door door was Spurgeon himself. And he said, "Um, yeah, come in, I'll show you round. And he said, "Um, can I show you the boiler room? This was in June when the boiler room wasn't necessary. But he said, can I show you the boiler room? And he took these group of young, young men, it was, downstairs into this room at the bottom of the church. And literally hundreds of people were there praying for the service which was to follow. He called it his boiler room. In Spurgeon's time, steam was the power source of the day. Boiler rooms were powerhouses and the driving force of everything from vast machines in factories to household heating systems. Boiler rooms though, from my experience, and Spurgeon said this, are not always very pleasant places. They're often functional, dirty, and hot. Often tucked away in the basement. Spurgeon saw the prayers of his people as the spiritual power behind his preaching and ministry. This is why he told fellow pastors, Brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general 
till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. And if you read the book of Acts, there's time after time where God's people gather to pray. In Acts chapter 4, it talks about how they prayed and the place where they were meeting was shaken. You want to reach the lost in your community? Then pray together. You want to see the children of your church find God? Then pray for them. You want to see the Holy Spirit be poured out on his church? Then you must pray. You want to reach your neighborhood? Then you are called to pray. They waited on God in obedience. But what were they waiting for? Finally, they were waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, it says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Isn't it funny how we get kind of sidetracked at times from the real thing? That wasn't the question that um, Jesus wanted them to ask. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is the reason the power came. Again, at this conference I was at yesterday, somebody said that, this, the power is not for party, but for proclamation. I think so often in church, we're maybe looking for that supernatural experience of God, and sometimes God blesses us with those things. In Acts, there's much evidence in the later chapters of the gift of the Holy Spirit in action. But to be truly biblical... And living and moving the gifts and the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, we've got to recognize that it isn't for our personal experience alone. It is power to proclaim to this world about Jesus. Again, at the conference yesterday, they talked about miracles happening, the Holy Spirit at work in people's lives and But all the time it was to draw people to faith in Jesus Christ. The power is for our witness. The gifts, the miracles, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in you is for your witness. People will notice. People will notice the Holy Spirit's power in you. In Acts 4 again... It talks about Peter and John. And even those who were accusing them of doing wrong said this. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. The reason they took note that these people had been with Jesus was because the Holy Spirit had come upon them in power. And it's for your community It's for St. Austell. From wherever you come in this locality. It may be that God wants to use you elsewhere. It starts in Jerusalem, doesn't it? So that's St. Austell. Judea and Samaria. 
Cornwall, Devon. He may even be calling some of you to the ends of the earth. And that doesn't mean Penzance. It could be wherever God calls you. Go to the ends of the earth. 